15th verse of Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, beginning at verse 15. Now what I want you to do, what I'd like for you to do is to follow with me this great, great um, declaration of the plan of God for the world and redemption just explodes on this page. It's one of the best passages of Scripture you'll ever read. And I'll read through chapter 2, verse 7, and then over to Ephesians chapter 3, verse, uh, verse 7 and 11, through 11. For this reason I too, having heard of the faith and the Lord Jesus which exist among you and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of Him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know what is the hope of His calling, what are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of His power toward us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of His might which He brought about in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the age to come. And He put all things in subjection under His feet and gave Him as head over all things to the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience, among whom, among them we too all formerly lived, in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy, because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with Him, and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, in order that in the ages to come He might show the surpassing riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Now chapter 3, verse 7. Of which I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace which was given to me, according to the working of His power to me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things in order that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places that was in accordance with the eternal purpose which He carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
Salvation is like a room that has many windows. And every time you look into that room through a different window, you see the room from a different angle, a different viewpoint. But in order to see the room in full view, you have to look at it through every window. Salvation is like that. It has many windows, and every time you look at salvation through a different window, you see it in a different perspective. You get a different angle on it. There's the window of justification, that great doctrine that God declares us righteous while we're in a state of sinning. There is the window of redemption, and you look at salvation through that window, and salvation is this buying back with a view to freedom. Today, I want us to look at salvation through this particular window called in Christ, our, our life in Christ. If you were to ask somebody this morning, what is the essence of, the, of Christianity? What is the real issue of Christianity? What is the real um, heartbeat of what it means to be saved? Or to put it in a kind of a crude term, what is really, what are the, what is really the guts of the gospel? The answer to that, I think, would be this, this idea that we are in Christ, that we share His life. Jesus said to His disciples, I am the vine, you are the branches. You don't have to be a botanist to know that the branches are the vine. What Jesus was saying is this, is that we share in His life. And at the heart of the Christian life, at the, the issue of the, of the, uh, the marvel of, of the miracle of redemption or salvation, is that we share Jesus' life with Him so that we share in the work that God has done in Jesus. Now there are three particular things this morning I want you to see that we share with Christ. The first is that we share His exalted position. Where is Jesus this morning? Well, if He's not in the tomb, if he's been raised from the tomb, alive, and he ascended up into the clouds, where is he? Well, verse 20 of chapter 1 says that he is sitting at the right hand of God. He is exalted to the position of God's right hand. Well, where are you this morning? You say, well, I'm sitting here in this church service in Duran, America. Well, that's true geographically. But verse 6 of chapter 2 says that you have been exalted to the same position that Jesus enjoys. You've been raised, and in Him you are sitting at the right hand of God positionally. Now notice two things about that. It is a past event. Something already happened. I think sometimes we come to this verse and be tempted to uh, to translate or interpret that to say that that's going to happen when we die or you know when we go to heaven that God takes us to be with Him in heaven. Let me tell you something. I want to surprise you. You're already there. It's a past event and it's a present tense experience. What you're experiencing now 
uh, positionally is the same thing that the Lord Himself experiences positionally. You are at the right hand of God right now. So that in sharing this position with Christ, you have two addresses. You have a um, geographical address, that's where you live in this earth. Um, you have a theological address. Somebody asked you this morning, uh, you know, you go back to the dormitory and say, where, where do you live? You say, well, I live at the right hand of God. And he don't think you're kind of, you know, uh, off the wall, but that's, that's truth. That's theologically correct. Positionally, we are at this address at the right hand of the Father. That makes everything look different when you see it from that perspective. I mean, if all I can see in this life is what I see from my geographical address, I'm going to be gloom and doom. I don't have to have some politician tell me how, what a mess we're in. I know what that's about. But I'm not going to look at life from a geographical perspective all the time. I'm not, I don't have to. I'm going to see things from the theological address where I'm seated at the right hand of the Father. Now, now, now get serious. If you believe the Bible, this is what, this, what it says. Is that right now, because of a past tense event, you are seated with Christ at God's right hand. Now that has two implications about it. First of all, it's a place of spiritual abundance. A place of spiritual abundance. Now he says there in, in this passage that we we experience, we have every spiritual blessing. Every spiritual blessing. If you've got a King James, it's all spiritual blessing. You know what that means in the Greek? It means all. It means that in French. It means that in German. It means that in Canadian. And it means that in Texan. It means it in every language. That when you are, when you are saved, when you are exalted to the right hand of the Father, you experience or experiencing every blessing of the Holy Spirit. Every blessing of the Holy Spirit. You don't have to pray for some second blessing. You already have every blessing of the Holy Spirit. Every one of the blessing of the Holy Spirit. And it's a word that means these blessings which are of such nature that they are they originate and are communicated by the Holy Spirit of God. That is, every blessing that the Holy Spirit has, you have. It's a place of spiritual abundance. And you, why, you ask, why is it then, if I have every spiritual blessing, that, why is it that so many people live spiritually impoverished lives? They live in defeat. They live in, in impotence and weakness. They live in failure. Why is it so? Well, it's because we're not living by spiritual laws. We're not living by the laws of heaven. It's a place of spiritual abundance. Second, it's a place of spiritual authority. Now watch this. I'm not sure that you hear too often from Baptist pulpits the idea of spiritual authority. What is spiritual authority? Spiritual authority is that delegated power that, stand, that, that the name of our resurrected Lord stands behind. It's power that is delegated to you that His name stands behind. Authority. Now if there is a, a, a truth in the New Testament that's neglected, it's this. That every believer, by the right of his position in Christ, has the authority of God 
delegated to him. Jesus said that to his disciples. He said, whatever you will bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Spiritual authority, delegated authority, has the name of God behind it. You've read some of Bertha Smith's books, I think. In the end of one of Bertha Smith's books, I don't remember exactly which one, she gives an example of spiritual authority in the story of a lady by the name of Miss Mitchell. Now, Miss Mitchell uh, felt like God was calling her to be a missionary, and she went to India. She was all excited about this. And, uh, you know, to go to, to India and share the Savior with those people over there, it just thrilled her to death. When she got to India... She was placed in a home with two other missionaries and uh, servants took care of their uh, housework and everything and they, they just did mission work. It wasn't long until she became very homesick. She wanted to get, go back home. In fact, living with these two women, having servants care for them, she got this longing for a family. She wanted a marriage. She began to think about what she was missing. She didn't have, she'd never have children. She'd never have a marriage. She got the longing for that. And she was having trouble learning the, the language of India. And she was really struggling that, couldn't get it down. And to compound the problem, she got sick. She had a dysentery. And the doctor told her, he said, uh, unless you go back to America, you'll never be well. Now, she had come to the place where she just literally loathed those people and she hated being there, and so she thought to herself, I'm headed home. She packed up her bags, packed up all of her belongings, got them all ready, and the next day she used to ship out. She got up early in the morning, and as was her custom, she had her quiet time, and she read from the book of Joshua, chapter 10. God led her to these, this story of these five uh, kings that Joshua pursued and they went into a cave and hid. It's found in the 10th chapter of Joshua. They were called the kings of Makeda. And he put a stone in front of this cave and sealed them in there and after a while I guess he knew they'd be starving to death. He rolled the stone back, brought these kings out and told his men to put their foot on their necks as a sign of triumph, as a, a sign of victory. And Joshua said, Fear not, neither be dismayed, be strong and of good courage, for thus the Lord shall do to all your enemies that fight against you. And immediately that woman heard from God. She realized she had five enemies. Her homesickness, her desire for a family, her problem with the Indian language, her, uh, her illness, and her loathing of those people, she didn't like them. They, they irritated her. She put those names, each, each one of those enemies, on a piece of paper and, and put them down on the floor. She called them her enemies. And she put her foot on each one of them and claimed authority over them. She fell in love, got married, had a family, and loved those people like she loved her own family. Now here's the, here's the issue here is that all of this authority was hers because she named the name of Jesus. And that authority, authority waited for her to, to claim it, to assert it, to stand on it. Now what we have in Christ Jesus is spiritual abundance. You shouldn't have to live as a pauper. 
And we have spiritual authority, and that's the power that's delegated to us that has the name of God behind it because we dwell at the right hand of God. And I think that someday when we get to heaven, we're going to look around, we're going to say, I've been here before, I've lived here for a long time. This looks familiar. We share His exalted position. All right, second. Looking through the window of this in Christ theology that Paul um, uh, revered is is to see that we share, we share in His eternal purpose. We share in His eternal purpose. Now that purpose is twofold. I want you to look at verse 7 of chapter 2 with me. Let's look at it again. In order that in the ages to come He might show the surpassing riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Now the first purpose, the first aspect of his, this twofold purpose we share in Christ is to demonstrate to the world the riches of His grace. To demonstrate to the world the riches of His grace. You know what you are? You're a trophy of God's grace. A while back I went to a friend's house. I knew this guy played golf, but I didn't know how good he was. I went inside of his house and, and I noticed right away he had all these trophies there, uh, golf trophies that he had won. And uh, they were all in this trophy case. I said in the early service, it was not Mike Matheny. It wasn't him. Uh, but he had this, these, these golf trophies there and I, I looked at them and I admired them. I really didn't admire the trophies. I admired my friend. And I'm thinking to myself, man, I, I got, this guy's special. Not only is he a good friend and a good guy, but he's a great golfer. I mean, the guy's talented. He's, he's skilled. He, he has, he, he has, he's, a, he's an athlete. And those trophies were the proof of his athletic ability. I didn't admire the trophies. I admired him. You know why God saved you? One day God reached down from heaven and He found you, and Paul says that you're in this state. He said you were dead in your trespasses and sins, and you followed the prince of this world, and you just kind of drifted along like a chip on a river, just with every, every evil desire and all these kinds of things. And one day God reached down and saved you and polished you up and put you in this trophy case, not so the world would admire you, but so the world would admire Him. And folks come along and they see you as His trophy, the riches of His grace. They see you, the, the, the proof of the grace of God, and they look at you and they don't admire you. That's not what it's all about. They look at you and they say, My, what a great God you must have. What a wonderful Savior you must know. I'm going to have to tell you, sometimes those trophies get a little tarnished and get a little dust on them and it's hard to see his image in them sometimes. He has to kind of polish us up, polish up, polish up, us, uh, uh, polish us up. <laughs> Easy for you to say. Purpose of God is to demonstrate the riches of his grace. Second, the purpose of God is for us to demonstrate to the supernatural world the rightness of his wisdom. Now I want you to look at verse 10 of chapter 3. 
He says, in order that the manifold wisdom of God might be known, made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. That the wisdom of God might be known to the rulers and the authorities in the supernatural world. Now I know that that world is inhabited by angels. I believe that. But I also believe that this supernatural world is inhabited by the devil and his demons. And he, we don't have to be a Harvard graduate to know that the prince of darkness is the ruler of the supernatural world. Look at this. God said, I saved you so that I could demonstrate to the supernatural world my wisdom. I have a sense that the devil thinks he knows more about how to run this world than God does. That's what we think, isn't it? I mean, I, I, there have been many times when I wanted to clue God in on how He needs to run His world and my life and everything else. I have sometimes, I, in you know, my weaker moments, I have a, a sense that I could run this world better than God does. The devil sure believes that. And God says, I want to save you so that in the ages to come, I want to be able to demonstrate to the supernatural world how smart I am. And that's what Peter picks up on in the first chapter. And he says that we have these things by the Holy Spirit given to us from heaven, things into which angels long to look. I love it. What Peter's saying is this, that we know some things about God that the angels don't even know about. And what he wants to do when he saves us is so that we can be a demonstration to this supernatural world that God is smarter than we think he is. This God is wonderful. Wouldn't you like that? Wouldn't you like to be one of those, those trophies that God could hold up to the devil and say to him, this is how smart I am. Look at this guy. That word manifold is a beautiful word. It means many colors. If you trace the word out, manifold wisdom, if you trace that word all the way out, it means embroidery. You, your mother ever make those little doilies? I know you don't make them anymore. My mother used to make those little doilies. I got about a hundred of them for, for presents after I got married. Kind of wished for something a little better than that occasionally, but, uh, but now I realize how, how wonderful they were, these little doilies that mother made, you know, embroidered. You, you've heard the story at every funeral on the back of those doilies. It looks a lot different. There's no pattern, there's no shape, just tangled mess. I got, I got an idea, I have a sense that this world is filled with people who can make no sense out of it. I mean, it's a confused, un, you know, unrealistic, confused, tattered mess. You know why God saved you? So that He could just demonstrate to this supernatural world that there is a pattern and there is a purpose in everything God does, even in His creation. What you have this morning, I mean, this is shouting ground. What you have is that you share in the eternal purpose of God. One last thought, please. You not only share in His exalted position, His eternal purpose, you share in His exhaustless, exceeding power. Now I want you to go back with me to verse 19. Chapter 1. And what is the surpassing greatness of His power toward us who believe? These are in accordance with the working of the power of His might. And the New American Standard has strength of His might. 
As a matter of fact, there are four different words for power in this last section of chapter 1. Four different words for power. That's a sermon in itself. But what he's saying is that, that the power of God defies description. Now you and I can call it dynamite and talk about the dunamis and we can talk about power and we use all these terms to try to describe it and define it. It defies description. That's what Paul said, that the power of God is such there is no way to understand it. It defies description. But there are three things about this power that he helps us to know. Number one is that it's resurrected power. Resurrected power. It's power that raises the dead. That's what he says here. Let's look at it again, chapter 1. Which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. This power, power of re, that raises from people from the dead. Now, if God wants to show me, says Tidwell, I want to show you how much power you possess. And so I said, well, I'd be glad to do that. Would you show me a miracle or two? You know, make, a, make, make so-and-so disappear off the face of the earth. You know, show, me some, show me some power. And God said, okay, I'm going to take you. I'm going to show you the greatest demonstration of my power. What's he going to, where's he going to take me? You answer, to the empty tomb. And he says to me, Gerald, you see that empty tomb? That's the power that dwells in you. Now, if I have this morning, watch this, if I have dwelling in me already because I share in the life of Jesus Christ, resurrection power, why am I always saying I can't do something? There is a word that is in our vocabulary that we ought to get rid of once and for all. It's the word can't. Any time a believer uses that word, he's borderline blaspheming. Why is it that you can't if the power that raised Jesus from the dead is yours in Christ? You answer that. And so God says to me, Tell well, what's greater? Your problem or raising somebody from the dead? What? I don't have to be too smart, and I'm not. Get the answer right on that one. Check off, raise from the dead. What is greater? What's harder to do? Stop that habit that you don't like anyway, or raise somebody from the dead? What's, what's harder to do? Forgive that person who's hurt you, or raise somebody from the dead? You know the answer to that. And God says, look, this stuff is minor stuff. The big thing that happened was when I raised Jesus from the dead, and that power is yours in Christ Jesus. So whenever I get to feel like it's something I can't do, you know, what God, you know what God does? He takes me back to the empty tomb. He says, now which is the harder? Resurrection power. Second, the power that we have in Christ is reigning power. Now look at verse 21 and 22. 
Far above, he says, all rule and authority and power and dominion. Take a pencil and circle far above. Not just a little bit above, not tied with, but far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the age to come. And he's put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. Now, stay with me here a minute. Where does it say Jesus is? He's far above all authority and dominion. Not only in this age, but in the next one. Now, when he wrote this word, it, you know, when this was written, it was in the first century, about A.D. 50 or 60. And he wants us to know that, you know, there might something, something might come along to those folks that live in Duran, America in the 20th century that didn't have the same name they had it on, had then, you know. It has a brand new name to it. AIDS, for example. And, he, and he's saying this. He's saying that, that anything that you can name, you have power and authority over. You're above, far above. Now listen to this. If everything is under the feet of Jesus, I did this in the first service and got a zero. I got absolutely no response. It was early though. <laughs> you want to get out and you're not going to get out till you get the answer. Okay? <laughs> if, 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 if Jesus is above all things and everything is under his feet, and you are the body of Christ. Where is everything to you? Under my feet. Under my feet. If I'm the body of Christ and he's the head, you know, and I'm his body and everything is under his feet, everything is under mine. Braining power. So at that next time that person says to you, well, I'm doing pretty good under the circumstances, you ask him why he's under the circumstances. He's far above them. They're under his feet. Holy cow, I'm walking on circumstances, treading down circumstances. If I was a black preacher, I'd take off there. I'm walking on top of circumstances, treading them down, walking on them. Reigning power, finally, released power. Now I want to slip over to chapter 3 and read verse 19, verse 20, 19 and 20. And to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that what? Is released within us, works within us. It's released power. I built a church in Grand Coulee, Washington, when I was working in the Northwest. I didn't build it, but I had it worked, got it done. And I, I went there to, to look at it, to, um, to dedicate it, to be there for the time when the people started that, to, to meet in it. Now, Grand Coulee, that gives you a clue as to where it is. It's a little community next to Grand Coulee Dam. My family and I visited Grand Coulee Dam. A gigantic place. Down in the bottom of that dam is this great power plant that, that gives electricity to the Northwest. 
And this, this water from the Columbia River, I think our young people may be going to the Northwest this summer on a mission trip. That's the plans, right, Mark and Andy? In this, the Columbia River, magnificent place, and all this water stored up behind this gigantic dam, and underneath it are these huge turbines, um, ministerially speaking, as big as this room. <laughs> In reality, about the size of the middle part of this church building, huge. And these things are roaring and humming. And when they got that thing completed and that power plant installed, somebody walked over to a wall and punched a button. And the power that was stored up in those turbines shot across the Pacific Northwest and lighted every house. It had electricity. I can remember when we didn't have electricity in our house. I just a little... Can't identify that, can you? <laughs> As a little kid, we used coal oil, coal oil. And one day, Daddy told us, it said, uh, association or whatever, authority. And they came through the country and they signed wires out to our house. And when they hooked it all up and got it ready, Mother went in there, drum roll, and Mother goes over and switches a little light while the darkness went away. Power came to Monday, Texas. Hear me now. The moment you got saved, you got in heaven and pushed a button and all the power of God was released. That power released to you. The power of God released. God wants us just to be channels of that power who are on the lip of the cup. He said, gentlemen, your innermost being shall flow rivers of water. You have in Christ. Let's pray. I end to the power source. Give us the faith to do that. Gift of eternal life. And some of us are we pray you'll shine us up. Put us back in power. And may I, I pray we have enough today for I ask in Jesus' name. For his sake. There are three invitations. If you're here and you're saved, you're not a member of a local church, I invite you to come and place your life. Father, you need to get that right. While we stand to sing, we invite you to come.